Hey there everyone, my name is Grant, and you are listening to the History of the Modern Middle East, Episode 4, Stumble and Struggle. After a long wait, we are finally back to the main narrative we left back in Episode 3. In that episode, we covered the Young Turks Revolution of 1908, along with the attempted counter-revolution of 1909, which was quickly undone by the Third Army under Sevket Pasha, which resulted in Sultan Abdul Hamid II being deposed by Parliament and being replaced by his brother, Mehmed V. In today's episode, we are going to look at the aftermath of the revolution and how the empire would continue to stumble as it struggled to get back on its feet. Diplomatically speaking, both revolutions put the great powers of Europe at unease. Despite the CUP's desires for better relations with the British, the British did not return the same affections. Anti-Semitism was prevalent within the British Foreign Offices around the turn of the century, which led influential members of it to believe that the Young Turks and the CUP were secretly run by international Jewry. This was believed despite the fact that of the original 288 members elected to the Ottoman Parliament, only four were Jews, and there were no Jews on the Central Committee for the CUP and that the four Jews elected to Parliament did everything they could to convince others that they were Ottomans first and Jews second. They went so far as to oppose Zionist settlement in Palestine, which we'll cover in a later episode. Relations with Germany had been made uneasy since the October Crisis in 1908, when it gave its support to the Habsburgs in annexing Bosnia-Herzegovina, which had formerly been a part of the Ottoman Empire. On top of that, the removal of Abdul Hamid II after the failed counter-revolution upset Kaiser Wilhelm II, who had seen the Sultan as a friend and ally against Western liberalism. The first major change made after removing Abdul Hamid II was to amend the Constitution. The Constitution in use up to that time had been written back in 1876 under the duress of foreign invasion and economic crisis, and yet still left a lot of power in the hands of the Sultan. Well, in order to make sure what happened in April could never happen again, Parliament decided to change the Constitution. Article 3 of the 1876 Constitution had given unconditional sovereignty to the House of Osman, which had ruled the Ottoman Empire since its founding. So the first change they made was to make sure that the right to rule was conditional upon the Sultan's oath to Parliament to respect the Constitution. They further curbed the power of the Sultan by removing his right to appoint cabinet ministers, but he was still allowed to appoint the Grand Vizier, who would presumably pick people who were okayed by the Sultan. These changes reduced the Sultan to a figurehead, similar to how the monarch in Britain operated. Their only job was to give formal approval of the Acts of Parliament. They also executed the mutinous soldiers along with the chief eunuch of the palace, Nadir Aga. But the CUP wasn't just interested in weakening the Sultan. They also wanted to weaken the Grand Vizier and the cabinet, who had failed to stop the counter-revolution. After the counter-revolution, the CUP tried to position themselves in the cabinet by appointing their members and undersecretary positions. The logic behind this was that when a minister was removed from office, their undersecretary would assume their responsibilities until a new one could be appointed. It was also assumed that the undersecretary positions would be the favored positions to succeed the ministers. However, there was a problem. Undersecretaries were not actually part of the cabinet. The committee made appeals to Mahmud Sevket Pasha, as well as to the Grand Vizier Hilmi Pasha, who had returned to his pre-counter-revolution office, but neither of them would allow it. 
In order to obtain this power, the CUP attempted to amend the Constitution so that members of the Chamber of Deputies would be allowed to serve in the Cabinet and Undersecretary positions. Similar to how the U.S. system works, at that time members of the legislature could not hold offices concurrently in the executive branch. The CUP wanted to make it more like the British system, where members of parliament could hold their elected seats along with cabinet positions. An amendment to do this was brought before the parliament in June of 1909, and it resulted in a very heated debate. A vote was held on June 12th, in which Chamber President Ahmed Riza tried to use the rules of parliamentary procedure to push the amendment through by having the deputies vote by a show of hands. After the vote, Riza declared that the amendment had passed. However, this caused an uproar amongst non-CUP deputies, who demanded a roll call vote. Ahmed Riza acquiesced to this demand, and the vote resulted in 113 in favor and 74 against. Although a majority of the chamber supported the move, it lacked the two-third majority required by the Constitution to amend it. The issue was reopened for discussion on June 17th, but the opposition was still too strong. So the CUP withdrew the motion. After this attempt failed, the CUP decided to try to get their members appointed to the cabinet directly. The first CUP member to serve in any real capacity in the cabinet was Mehmet Kavit Bey, a deputy representing Salonika, who was appointed as Minister of Finance, and would go on to serve many important roles through the fall of the Empire and the establishment of the Republic. Cavett Bay would begin drawing plans for economic reform within the Empire, such as the creation of a publicly acknowledged budget, instead of the government operating on secretive levels of spending. He also wanted to reform taxes within the Empire, along with implementing tariffs on imports, but this latter policy would require the acquiescence of the Great Powers. The Ottoman government had been in dire budget straits since the Crimean War in the 1850s when the Ottoman government borrowed large sums of money to keep its military funded. This debt continued to grow until the 1870s when the world economy fell into depression, which resulted in the Ottoman government declaring bankruptcy in 1875, as mentioned back in episode 1. In response to this, the international community forced the Ottoman government to cooperate with a body known as the public debt which was technically part of the Ottoman Ministry of Finance, but was allowed to act independently. This department was given control of the imperial revenues from salt, tobacco, silk, fisheries, and other state monopolies in order to ensure that foreign investors were paid for the loans taken out by the Ottoman government. It was also governed by a board of foreign debt holders, and it was staffed with an army of functionaries, many of which didn't have any practical responsibilities. Cavett Bay suggested reducing spending by cutting government functionaries, and those working at the public debt were first on the chopping block. Many of these functionaries were inefficient and corrupt, but it was difficult to get them to leave their position voluntarily, and forcing them out was nearly impossible without international consequences. So the Ministry of Finance offered to give individual persons within the public debt a sum of money or a lifelong pension in exchange for them leaving their positions. The CUP felt that this was more effective in relieving their debt problems than leaving useless and corrupt employees in place not actually doing any work. Despite these cuts, the military kept on demanding larger and larger portions of the Ottoman budget to the point where it would spark a political crisis later on. Up to this point, the Ottoman government was still dependent upon foreign loans to keep itself afloat. But all of these debts had to be underwritten by the public debt department, which was in foreign control. 
Kahit Bey wanted to get more of the empire's finances out of the hands of foreigners, and so sought out loans to be underwritten by the finance ministry itself, rather than the independent public debt department. He hoped that getting more of the financial responsibility into the hands of his ministry would allow for more confidence in the new regime and the eventual abolishment of the public debt. In 1910, Cabot Bay went to Paris to negotiate a loan from French-controlled banks, while also sending feelers out to the British and the Germans. The French were the largest holders of Ottoman debt, owning about 55% of it, followed by the Germans who owned about 30%, and then the British who only owned about 5%. The French government was concerned over the hostility the CUP had towards foreign institutions in the Ottoman Empire. They made it clear to Cabot Bay and the Grand Vizier, that the French would only loan money to the Ottomans if they guaranteed continued French dominance of their finances. Unwilling to do this, Cavett Bay broke off negotiations with the French, despite the British encouraging them to take the offer made by them. Luckily for the CUP and the Ottoman Empire, in November of 1910, the Germans were willing to provide the money, and with much better terms than the French or the British were willing to offer. Along with Cabot Bay, they also got another CUP member, Mehmed Talat, appointed as interior minister. Talat was not highly regarded by foreign observers. British diplomats saw him as ungentlemanly and thought he was of poor racial stock, some rumoring him to be of gypsy origin. He had been involved in secret political societies in his youth, which eventually brought him into the Committee of Union and Progress. He was a part of the 200 men that sparked the revolution in July of 1908 under the command of Ahmed Niazi. Talat would become one of the most important people in Turkish politics. The Minister of the Interior was a powerful position, charged with the internal security of the empire, which would position himself nicely for the 1913 coup as one of the infamous three Pashas that ruled the Ottoman Empire through World War I, but we'll get to that in later episodes. The CUP attempted to get more of its members in the cabinet by ousting Hilmi Pasha from the position of Grand Vizier, and thereby replace him with someone more amenable to their aims. But this didn't go through, at least not on the first try. Since they couldn't get control of the cabinet, they decided to wage a war on it from the outside, starting with the press. A newspaper started by poet and CUP supporter Tevkit Fikret began attacking the cabinet with an especially damaging article on July 20th, 1909. His newspaper, Tanin, accused the cabinet of being comprised of too many members of the Hamidian regime, and called for them to be replaced with new, more honorable men, aka members of the Committee of Union and Progress. The CUP Central Committee in Salonika followed up this accusation by issuing a proclamation on the one-year anniversary of the revolution, calling for the removal from the cabinet of all members of the old regime. These attacks resulted in the resignation of the former interior minister, Mehmed Ferid Pasha, and the appointment of his successor, Talat Bey. In January of 1910, the CUP would finally remove Hilmi Pasha when he would resign from office and would be replaced by the ambassador in Rome, Ibrahim Haki Pasha. With a more compliant Grand Vizier, the CUP would also try to assert more power outside of the government. After the counter-revolution was put down, the parliament passed laws restricting public meetings, requiring them to be openly declared in advance, which prevented spontaneous gatherings. They also put restraints on freedom of speech with laws regulating the press. Things would get dangerous in June of 1910, when a journalist who criticized the CUP named Ahmed Samim was murdered, and the CUP was blamed for it. 
Since a similar murder had triggered the counter-revolution the year before, authorities were quick to preempt another by arresting numerous persons they saw as being potential troublemakers. They rounded up these people on the grounds that they were a reactionary group looking to overthrow the government. What's funny about this, though, is that once these cases were processed, they were usually dropped. Most historians have taken this as a sign that the CUP made up the cases against them, and that the primary purpose of the arrests was to sow confusion amongst their political opposition, and it seemed to work for a time. They also passed an anti-strike law in order to curb the growing labor movement within the empire. They banned political parties and other organizations that were explicitly affiliated with a particular ethnic or religious group. They would also create special military units tasked with repressing Greek, Bulgarian, and Armenian organizations, with a particular emphasis to disarm those populations. Harsh punishments were also prescribed for anyone who failed to report suspicious activity among these groups. They also began to conscript non-Muslims into the military, which had the double effect of building up the manpower in the army, while simultaneously reducing the number of able-bodied men within these minority communities. Traditionally speaking, non-Muslims wouldn't serve in the Ottoman military, and whenever they did, they would usually serve in a segregated non-Muslim unit. However, under the Young Turks, they were all integrated. These policies were not just a means of controlling potential dissidents, but also a sign that the Young Turks had given up on the idea of unifying the people of the Empire under an Ottoman identity. Or rather, it was that Ottoman was now synonymous with Turk. It wasn't just Christians that would face discrimination under the Young Turks. The Parliament put in place policies to push the use of the Turkish language on other Muslims, such as the Arabs and Albanians. They outlawed the use of the Latin alphabet, which united both Christian and Muslim Albanians against the Ottomans and the Young Turks. This was being done despite their attempts after the counter-revolution to unify the people, holding up that both Muslims and Christians lay dead side by side after the revolutions. However, on the two-year anniversary of the revolution in 1910, the Committee of Union and Progress admitted that their idea of pushing Ottomanism had failed and changed their platform to include a policy of leaving ethnic and religious minorities alone. They also continued their goal of reducing foreign interests within the empire. The Ottoman government had granted foreign powers numerous rights and privileges, but the Young Turks believed that the only way to create a strong modern state was to assert control over their own domestic affairs. However, the Ottoman state had been in a weakened state for some time, and therefore couldn't do this unilaterally. The parliament introduced legislation reforming the administration of the empire in order to make it more efficient. They also began implementing some social changes, such as building schools for girls, as well as land reform in an attempt to get rid of the last of the vast land-owning landlords. The hope was that if they made these improvements, that the powers of Europe would no longer see the need for their special privileges and would give them up voluntarily. They also hired foreign experts to improve the Ottoman post and telegraph systems, with the goal being to modernize them to the point where they didn't need foreign assistance. These attempts at undermining foreign interests didn't go unnoticed by the British, who continued to assert their right to oversee legislation passed by the Ottoman parliament. And just as the CUP was trying to reassert control over the country, they would begin to lose control of themselves. Prior to the counter-revolution, the CUP had announced that it was a formal political party with a formal leadership. The Central Committee had hoped that this would give them more power in Parliament 
because there were many deputies who were associated with the CUP but did not have any kind of marching orders on how to vote. However, this did not have the desired results. It failed to get the CUP the number of votes needed to amend the Constitution back in June of 1909, and before that it didn't help them prevent the failed counter-revolution. And in October of 1909, a co-founder of Tanin, Hussein Kahit, wrote an article calling for unity and discipline within the party, and for those who did not want to fall in line to leave the CUP and start their own parties. And so they did. In much of the historiography of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the Committee of Union and Progress is portrayed as a monolithic organization. But as seen back in Episode 2, they were divided before the revolution and would continue to be divided after the revolution. These divisions manifested themselves in early 1910 with the establishment of the first breakaway party from the CUP, the People's Party, which formed a base for conservative opposition to the CUP. They were dissatisfied with the committee on ideological grounds, but they couldn't engage much in street political activism due to martial law. So most of their activities were limited to verbally harassing the cabinet and members of the CUP in parliament. Despite the restraints on its activity, the party was more powerful than its numbers in parliament would suggest. Many of the young Turks who hadn't joined the CUP sided with the People's Party. The CUP became really concerned about the People's Party when it began threatening its stronghold in Macedonia. The government shut down some of these anti-CUP groups in Macedonia under the guise of suppressing a potential coup, which became a fairly common occurrence. A year later, another party, the New Party as they called it, was formed in early 1911. It was led by Colonel Sadek and Abdulaziz Mesidi Bey, and consisted of many of the junior officers from the 2nd Army. It lobbed criticism at the CUP for its anti-democratic policies and sought a third-way path between the religious reactionaries and the CUP with its foot on the gas. The new party's creation was paralleled by the emergence of the Progress Party, which although was further to the left than the CUP, remained closely aligned with it. The spree of breakaway parties was not as serious as rumors at the time made it seem, but it did put the CUP on the defensive, where it was forced to sacrifice one of its members in the cabinet in early 1911, Mehmed Talat Bey, in order to appease minorities and traditionalists. As Interior Minister, Mehmed Talat had been one of the big pushers of Turkification, especially the use of the Turkish language in Albania and Arabia. Getting rid of Talat would ease tensions between the CUP and non-Turks within the empire. However, Talat wouldn't leave empty-handed, because after his resignation he was made president of the CUP in Parliament, where he was expected to instill discipline and prevent further defections. Succeeding Talat as interior minister was Halil Sami Bey, who was far more moderate than his predecessor, as were the opposition to foreign capitulations. But all the while the politicians maneuvered to see who would have control of the constitutional apparatus of government, it was the military holding all the real power. When the Third Army recaptured the capital after the counter-revolution, Sevket Pasha declared martial law over Constantinople until such a time as they could restore law and order. And if you're familiar with the history of martial law, then you know it can be quite a long time before law and order is restored. The army was in control, and it formed the true rival for the CUP. When it came to politics, the army could be split into three groups. The largest of these were the rank-and-file soldiers, who were very susceptible to populist agitation. It was populist agitation that ultimately put the revolution and counter-revolution into motion. 
Because of this, the leaders of the army worked to keep them isolated from politics. The second group were the junior officers, who had been trained during the late Hamidian regime. This resulted in them being very political because it was the junior officers that were secretly taught political ideology at military academies, which resulted in them being the spearhead of the revolution. These factors made them supporters, for the time being, of the Constitution and the CUP. The third group were the senior officers. They were professional soldiers whose primary focus was discipline and wanted to limit the influence of politics on the army in order to prevent future revolutions. Laws were put in place to help remove the counter-revolutionary elements within the army, such as age caps for different levels of officers within the army. This was done in order to remove old guard officers who were still loyal or sympathetic to the Hamidian regime. They also put in place education requirements for different officer levels in order to remove the more rural and conservative elements from the military, as well as guarantee the liberally educated soldiers higher positions within it. Formally, the senior officers stayed out of politics, but the CUP expected to continue receiving junior officers within its ranks. Sevket Pasha, however, expected all officers to terminate their membership with the CUP and any other political organizations. Since the army was in control of the government, that meant Mahmud Sevket Pasha was the true power in the Ottoman Empire. He put himself, and therefore the army, outside the realm of civilian government oversight. And this went to the point of the two outwardly disagreeing on policy. In terms of foreign relations, the CUP favored closer ties with the British, while the army favored closer ties to Germany. One of the reasons the CUP wanted to get rid of Hilmi Pasha from the Grand Viziership is because they believed someone else would be better suited to challenging Sevket Pasha for power over the affairs of state. The CUP attempted to get the army under its control by making Sevket Pasha a part of the civilian government. As mentioned earlier, after Hilmi Pasha resigned from the Grand Viziership, he was succeeded by Ibrahim Haki Pasha. He had received a liberal education, all the while having ties to the previous regime, which gave him the clout to make deals with just about anyone. When putting together his cabinet, he appointed Sevket Pasha as Minister of War in January of 1910. The idea was that if Sevket Pasha was a formal part of the government, then he would be subject to the same legal and political restrictions as others, meaning that he could be impeached, sanctioned, and be subject to questioning from Parliament. However, this would not have the desired results. When Sevket Pasha was challenged by the finance minister, Kevet Bey, to allow the finance ministry to audit the army's spending, Sevket Pasha responded by resigning from the cabinet and claiming that the finance ministry did not have the power to audit the army. A small delegation visited Sevket Pasha's home in order to reach some kind of compromise. In this compromise, Sevket Pasha would return to the cabinet and recognize the finance ministry's right to audit the army, but Kavit Bey would choose not to use that power on the army. This was a complete humiliation for the CUP, who continued to give in to the army left and right. By December 24, 1910, Sevket Pasha asked Parliament for the authority to divert funds assigned to the Ministry of War at his discretion, to which Parliament complied. This affair resulted in Kavit Bey resigning from the cabinet, but he would be succeeded by Nail Bey, who also took Sevket Pasha to task for the secrecy of the military budget. A similar crisis played out again in August of 1911. Nail Bey threatened to resign, but Sevket Pasha left the cabinet meeting to go home, thereby leaving the issue undecided. 
The cabinet decided to postpone the rest of that discussion until parliament came back into session. But by then, world events had made the discussion a moot point. Because on September 29th, 1911, the Kingdom of Italy declared war on the Ottoman Empire. And unbeknownst to them at the time, this war would revitalize the CUP, who could call for all Ottomans to rally around the flag. But would it be enough? Thanks to everyone for waiting for so long for this new episode. If you're interested in what sources were used, you can go to the post for this episode at historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. If you're getting confused by all the names and characters that are being thrown around in the podcast episodes, I'm putting together a new page on the website under the heading Characters, where all the people I've been talking about are going to be listed, along with a short biography, the first episode they were mentioned in, and if available, a picture, and of course in alphabetical order. If you want to know more about what I'm doing or the progress of episode research and writing, then you can either follow my personal Twitter account at Grant G. Hurst. And in case you don't know, the Hurst in that name is spelled H-U-R-S-T. Or you can follow the official Twitter account for the podcast at H-M-M-E underscore podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can contact me on Twitter through the previously mentioned Twitter accounts or you can email me at historyofthemodernmiddleeast at gmail.com. You can also contact me through the Facebook page for History of the Modern Middle East. Thanks for listening.